This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In her new book, Snitching, Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice, our guest today, Alexandra Natapoff, examines this powerful and problematic practice in which informants' deals generate unreliable evidence, allow criminals to escape punishment, endanger the innocent, compromise the integrity of police work, and exacerbate tension between police and poor urban residents. Natapoff is an award-winning scholar and a nationally recognized expert on snitching in the criminal justice system and a professor of law at Loyola University in Los Angeles. Alexander Natapoff, welcome to Weekly Signals. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm doing real good. Things good up the coast right now? Uh, yeah, it's pretty yeah. nice up here. All right, real good. Now, how, how is it that you got involved in, in looking into and studying and doing reporting on snitching? What brought you into this field? Well, uh, over the past decade, I've run into snitching or the use of criminal informants in so many different ways. Uh, I've worked in urban communities. I've worked in the criminal justice system. And I just came to see what an immense force it was in the uh, criminal process, and yet almost no one knew about it, and no one ever sees it in public. So it seemed like the kind of subject that required research and airing so that uh, really the public can know how the criminal system really works. Isn't this an issue that's sort of hiding in plain sight? Everybody in law enforcement was familiar with the practice. In fact, it's a tried, it's a, a long held that it's, uh, you know, the benefits of it within the law enforcement community. Uh, but not something that law enforcement talks a lot about as as far as its methodology for gathering information. Was that, is that a fair assessment? Uh, actually, it's a great way of putting it. It is, it is exactly hiding in plain sight. Uh, if you work in the criminal justice system or have been touched by the criminal system in some way, it's likely that you have caught a glimpse of how important criminal informants and the deals between criminal offenders and the government are. And yet, it's such an unregulated practice. There are almost no rules. Uh, it's rarely written down. Uh, there's very little oversight or scrutiny. Even courts who oversee the criminal system uh, will not get to see the vast majority of the workings of the practice. So you're right. It's, it, it's right there um, in the center of the criminal system and at every, every turn. And yet, it's very, very hard to see. It, it, this is a little bit off subject, it, just because... I I can't think of a well m- how many films have we all seen in which a pivotal role some murder um a film about murder or a crime of some kind where a snitch wasn't an integral part of the story we have been in a manner of speaking b- we're very familiar as a populace but there's a big disconnect between what we see on the screen and it's the effect it has on on our and our enjoyment of a film as opposed to the actual impact it has on a, a very significant strata of, of our society. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to be clear, sometimes using a criminal informant is an important, maybe the only way of getting information about an important case yeah. or about penetrating a criminal organization like a gang or a corrupt corporation like Enron, for example. Mm-hmm. But think how you would feel if you knew that 
someone, maybe lots of folks in your neighborhood, were criminal offenders who were trying to work off their sentences by gathering information for the police. And if you knew that those folks were actually continuing to commit offenses, maybe continuing to use drugs or deal drugs or commit other kinds of crimes, knowing that they would get special treatment because they were useful to the government. It's that kind of experience that we don't see in the films, uh, but that all too many neighborhoods have to contend with. Now, is this a pretty common practice, or, or is this something that comes up rarely, and we're, we're just talking about something you know that's uh, impactful, but not often? Yeah, it's a pervasive practice. Okay. Uh, again, although it's hard to see from the public view, uh, particularly in drug enforcement, we know that drug enforcement tactics revolve heavily around informants. Uh, it's sometimes joked in the criminal system that every drug case involves a snitch, uh, but it might be more true that every drug case might involve more than one. Uh, the suspect, the witnesses, the investigations tend to rely on these kind of deals. Well, drug enforcement makes up about a third of our criminal justice system. A third of all state and federal cases are drug offenses. So right there, we know that a third of the system is running on this practice. Uh, but at the same time, it's not limited to drug enforcement. It's become an increasingly common way of pursuing investigations in white-collar crime, in fraud, in cybercrime. Uh, and federal statistics tell us, in fact, that every single category of case, from child pornography to murder, uh, can involve using a criminal informant. So it is widespread, it's everywhere, and it's a, it's a big part of the way we manage our criminal justice system. Can you talk about, there's a specific case, too, uh, the woman who is involved, a very minor drug charge who, who snitched. Uh, can you go into, you know which one I'm talking about? Are you talking the, about the, Rachel Hoffman the, in, in oh, Florida? Yes, I believe so. The, she was arrested for a marijuana possession. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was a terrible case about a year, uh, a year or so ago. Rachel Hoffman was 23 years old, um, a college graduate. She had a bright future. But she was caught, as you say, with... Uh, a small amount of marijuana and some non-prescription pills. And the police threatened her. They said, you're going to go to prison for that charge if you don't become an informant. And uh, because she was frightened of going to prison, she agreed without telling her attorney, without telling her family, uh, she went essentially to work for the police. And the police sent her on a sting operation uh, to buy a large amount of drugs and a gun from two suspects that they were very interested in. And those, sus those suspects killed Rachel Hoffman. Yeah. As, a, as a result of her death, her family embarked on a, uh, a very brave public education campaign and um, raised the issue of how criminal informants were being created in Florida, that young people like Rachel Hoffman, who might have no experience, no street smarts, everyone agreed that she was not at all equipped to engage in this kind of activity, and that nevertheless there were no rules to protect her or anyone like her from uh, becoming an informant. And so the Florida legislature last summer passed a law, it's called Rachel's Law, named after her, uh, and it's the first of its kind in the country where the legislature has said to the police, you need to create guidelines. You need to keep track of informants, which they hadn't been required to do before, you need to think about who should be an informant and who shouldn't be an informant, rules that hadn't existed before. And uh, so 
as I as I wrote in the book and elsewhere, I, I think other states should look at Florida and start thinking about how do we want this process to be run. Yeah. Now, how is Rachel's law working so far in Florida? Have, have there have been any complaints by police departments, or are they pretty much towing the line on this and having success? Well, it's very new. Uh, it was just passed over the summer, and uh-huh. it instructed the police departments to create the guidelines. So uh-huh. the police are, are in the process of creating them. And it's really eye-opening to realize that such an important part of our criminal justice system lacks guidelines. Uh, the federal government has, uh, has relatively uh, comprehensive guidelines now over the past decade, why? Because they had so many debacles and so many terrible incidents with the FBI and their informants that the Department of Justice finally stepped in and said, we need uh, to regulate this practice. We need rules about keeping track and data collection, and most importantly, keeping track of the crimes that our informants commit, because until that time, there was no way of knowing how many crimes informants were committing in pursuit of information for the government. Uh, we're speaking with Alexandra Natopoff, and the book is Snitching, Criminal Informants, and the Erosion of American Justice. I'm going I'm to take a little leap here, uh, and just, just to make a point, and I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but you, you just spoke of the FBI and informants. And let's look at sort of an international incident uh, with the United States. Listen to a guy named Curveball. And the reason I'm bringing this up, when that led to, uh, a, in some manner of speaking, led into a policy in which we invaded Iraq, is a lot of the time that we that, that snitching is, is uh, that law enforcement is so eager to embrace snitching is that they get they get information that they wanted to hear. Is it is. In other words, a, a snitch is, and a lie assume that there is sort of a subculture of people who have been able to work the system for a long period of time, manage to stay out of jail or spend minimal amounts of time in jail because they understand how the system works and they know just enough to keep themselves out of jail. So how much of this is playing into what police want to hear when, they, when, when snitching is involved? Yeah, it's not a digression at all. It really goes to the heart of one of the problems of relying on criminal informants, and it takes place at every level of the criminal system, from jailhouse snitches who come forward to try to get uh, breaks on their own cases by telling police what they want to hear, all the way up into international relations and diplomacy, where the um, where people know that the government is heavily dependent on the informants that it relies on. So at every stage along the way, we're essentially hoping uh, that the criminal offenders that we're relying on are giving us good information. And we're also risking the danger that you, uh, that you mentioned, which is that they're going to tell the government what they think the government is going to want to hear because that's how they're going to get their deal. Yeah. And... and uh, I wanted to get into sort of the socioeconomic part of all of this, and by by way of an article that you wrote back in uh, December of 2005, and this has to do with a, a T-shirt that that uh, um, was that came out that was being worn around uh, that you referred to in an article. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Stop yes, sn- I do. Yeah. It was on Slate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, Slate. Stop, stop snitching. And and uh, the, because uh, there is this un, in, unfortunate and inevitable part for the story because you you mentioned uh, the drug uh, how, how heavily this is involved in uh, prosecuting drug offenders and oftentimes unfortunately we're talking about a very 
particular part of our our society, which is the African American community. And uh, this is where this stop snitching came up. This T-shirt. So just a little bit of background on that would, would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. I, I devote a whole chapter of the book to it because it's so um, important and really an interesting look at the connections between our criminal justice system on the one hand and our society on the other and how neighborhoods and communities perceive themselves and perceive the justice system. So what happened was about um, you know, almost five years ago now, uh, there was an underground DVD called Stop Snitching and uh, a bunch of T-shirts that also said Stop Snitching on them. And they surfaced around the country in Boston and Baltimore and Pittsburgh and Milwaukee and Oakland and all over the place. And uh, so they got a lot of mainstream media attention. Um, some people wore them to court. Uh, and some people used them as witness intimidation, um, and some kids just wore them as kind of an anti-authority, uh, some in your eye statement. And so the stop snitching phrase kind of took on a life of its own. And what I try to show in the book is that this idea, the idea that you shouldn't snitch, has deep roots in the criminal justice system that because the criminal system has been relying so heavily on criminal snitches, mostly as a result of the war on drugs, that people in urban communities know that folks around them are committing crimes and, and, uh, and not being punished for those crimes because they're cooperating with the police. Let me tell you a story. Uh, about a decade ago, I was working in inner-city Baltimore, and one of the things I was doing was teaching classes in community centers. And one evening I was teaching a class, to a group of young people, and, and a kid raised his hand. He was about 12 or 13, and he said, uh, I got a question. So police let dealers stay on the corner because they're snitching. Is that legal? I mean, can the police do that? And when I explained to him and his friends that, yes, the police can do that, the police have the discretion to let offenders remain at large, they were disgusted. He said, the police aren't doing their job. And another said, oh, so all you got to do is snitch and you can keep on dealing. And so this is where the yep. stop snitching idea came from. Right. It's, uh, it has, as I said, it's taken on a life of its own. It, it has become uh, a, a very troubling part of a much larger problem that we have with witness intimidation and the reluctance of people to come forward to, to cooperate with the police either because they're afraid for their own lives or because there's been so much distrust between urban communities and the police that people, uh, people are reluctant to cooperate with the police. So Stop Snitching really lets us see a whole bunch of things that are going on in communities and with our, um, and with our criminal justice system. And, and Alexander Nadapov, doesn't this also feed into a, uh, a pervasive sense within the African-American community, within the poor communities around the United States, that the police are not there to protect them. They're there to essentially keep them underfoot. Doesn't this feed into that whole mentality, uh, right or wrong? Um, well, as, as you point out, this is a long-standing yeah. challenge and problem. Uh, we have a history of decades, if not hundreds of years, uh, of uh, the tension between pol the, the uh, police departments and African-American communities, particularly poor urban African-American communities, yeah. where um, 
you know, improvements in that situation are relatively recent. And, you know, Los Angeles and many other cities have been struggling with um, how to improve the understanding and trust between our highest crime, most vulnerable communities and the police that people often uh, uh, are not sure whether they're there to protect them. Um, and this touches on many large issues, issues of uh, long uh, history of discrimination, of course, of racial profiling, and the fact that our criminal justice system comes down most heavily on poor African-American communities. We have much higher arrests for drug possession, for example, for African-Americans than we do for whites and other groups, even though African-Americans use drugs at the same rate as everybody else. So we know that the criminal system is lopsided. Uh, People in the communities know that the criminal system is lopsided. There's also a a scary uh, uh, flip side to the question, which is, Urban police departments are famously underfunded and understaffed. They don't have the resources to provide the protection that people should have in their communities. So even while people are struggling with their, uh, their distrust of the police and their concerns about their own security, we know that, those, that people in those communities have long wait times for 911. There are crimes that go unsolved. So it's a, it's a real challenge in those communities for us to improve policing and improve community relations. And the heavy use of criminal informants makes it worse. We have offenders who are out. People know they're out. Twelve-year-olds know they're out. And this can do nothing but further erode the, uh, the situation between communities and the police. We're speaking with Alexander Natapoff. The book is Snitching, Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice. The other thing you point out, too, is that the people who are more likely to get a deal are the people who are higher up in the criminal organization. And and therefore, you're protecting the ones who probably should be, if they really want to uh, <laughs> disassemble the, the uh, structure of the crime, uh, they're, they're giving the people who would be most valuable to take out of that system uh, the, uh, the right to continue to be in it. And, and on the other hand, punishing those uh, who don't have the information, who aren't uh, high up on that structure. Is that a fair assessment? It's one of the uh, great ironies of snitching is that it kind of turns our criminal system upside down. Yeah. Uh, it rewards offenders who have the most information because they are the most useful to the government, so they get the better deals. Well, the criminals with the most information tend to be the ones who have, uh, as you say, been higher up in the hierarchy or have committed worse acts, uh, whereas the street corner addict or the low-level offender who has no information is going to be punished more heavily, not because they did something worse, but because they're less useful. We usually think of the criminal system as gathering information in order to pursue offenders or to prevent crime. And snitching turns this exactly backwards. It lets the government cut deals using its power over guilt and criminal liability uh, to protect its information sources. It's as if the drive for information is now driving the criminal system in ways uh, that really reverse a lot of our important priorities. I'm going to make a sweeping literary reference here, and I don't know if this is some. This plays into the psychology of the police department. As you just described it, 
there's a underfunding, they're, they're under siege. I'm sure these police departments in some of these urban and lots of these urban areas feel like, holy, you know, how, what are we doing? How are we going to get to the heart of this problem? And uh, it seems to what you just described is what I would refer to as sort of a Moby Dick uh, mentality here, that they keep chasing the white whale, that if they allow these sort of mid-level drug dealers to to continue to to uh, stay out of jail, that somehow they're going to find the ultimate drug connection, the drug uh, drug lord of some kind. And it's just this kind of idea, this phantom idea that if they can just go high enough in the in the drug cartel, uh, they can they can solve uh, they can begin to turn around some of the problems that they face every day. Is that is that part of this? Well, you know, your your metaphor is apt. There's wide consensus, really across the political spectrum, that the war on drugs has not been successful. Oh, it's a failure. Uh, that the drug economy itself is not susceptible to uh, to control through the criminal process. Yeah. That going after individual dealers or even trying to work your way up the ladder does not really significantly affect the workings of the entire economy. You arrest one dealer, somebody else springs up to take his place. You shut down one um, production or supply line, competition takes care of it, and somebody else provides, uh, you know, provides another source. So what that means is, when we use a costly and risky tactic like snitching, letting offenders uh, off or remain on the street in order to get information from them, they may be costing us more than they benefit us. Mm-hmm. Because when we look the other way uh, uh, for their offenses, we permit them to continue to use drugs or to sell drugs or to commit uh, other violent offenses or theft offenses. The neighborhoods in which they live bear the cost of that choice. It's their friends, their families, their neighbors who have to live with those ongoing offenses. Why do we do it? We do it for information to go after someone else, but uh, that may not be an effective way of undermining the, the drug economy as we know it. And so it may be a tool that is generating arrests, or prosecutions, but the end goal of the criminal system is not arrests and prosecutions. It's security, it's safety, it's the reduction in drug use and the violence associated with drug use. And snitching may, in these high-crime neighborhoods uh, that are already suffering from social vulnerability and uh, from uh, such high levels of, uh, of drug abuse and criminal offending, snitching may actually be exacerbating the situation. Yeah. Well, do you describe the Florida law? We're running very short on time here. Are those is that Florida law a good example of the kind of reforms that you want to see? Is there other other aspects that you like to see uh, as a part of this reforming of the the idea of uh, rewarding snitching the way we do? Mm, yeah, Florida. The Florida law is a good start. Um, it's a it, in the great scheme of things, it's a small step requiring police to keep, have standards and keep track of their informants is a small. step. Uh, in the right direction, but it's a very important first step. Uh, states all across the country, including California, are starting to look at this question. California twice has passed um, legislation that would require corroboration when the government wants yeah. to use a jailhouse informant. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger has vetoed it both times. Oh. But it's a debate that is ongoing from New York to California, Texas, Illinois. 
states are starting to ask, how can we regulate this process? Should we use informants as witnesses? Should we use them in drug enforcement? And I think the legal landscape is going to look very different in 10 years. Well, I, I think the culture of policing has to change, and that's what I think you're describing. I just hope that there's some mechanism in place if they do decide to embark on these reforms across the country that actually does hold the police accountable for following through and not just giving paying lip service and going back to business as usual. Well, you know, our system gives a vast amount of discretion to police. We really rely yeah. Yeah. on individual police officers to make these judgment calls, and we give them the tool of snitching. We say, off the record, however you want to handle it at the moment, on the street corner or in the back of the cruiser, you can make that deal. We need to start telling our, our police, our prosecutors, our law enforcement system how we want that discretion mm-hmm. to be handled. Well, this is a wonderful book, an incredibly important, underreported until now uh, aspect of our criminal justice system. And I really want to thank you for for your research and putting this book together. The book is Snitching uh, Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice. Alexander Nopopov, I'm sorry. I just, I'm so sorry. I was, I'm sorry. Uh, Thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. Oh, thanks so much for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.